welcome back to Amago Gay. Uh, we're excited every time I sit down at this podcast to do a new episode. I am excited for the conversation. You know, it's really a gift to us, I think, to be able to, I don't know, cement it in and some ways. And process it in some ways. It, yeah. And like, so I so appreciate everybody who has been writing us and just tells us the impact of these conversations and our life journey. And so if you guys want to write to us, uh, you can reach me at Kendra Arsenault with an X. And Roxanne Marie, I think with two eyes. With two eyes, yeah, on Instagram. <laughs> so feel free to DM us. We'll reach back out. And we are continuing our conversation on our transition. And I'm really excited to share something that really came up so strong for me today. I don't have a lot of moments that that I make a lot of biblical associations to anymore for whatever, for various reasons. And we can talk a little bit about that. I'm going to read a journal entry from 2011 (laughs) that I am just over the moon right now because it just gives you a completely different person as far as the mind and the way I was reasoning through my own spirituality. It's just crazy. It is Wild. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) So when you say that you don't have any biblical associations to what you go through now, you're basically talking, I I think I can relate because anytime I was experiencing something in my life, I think I would look to characters in scripture or narratives in scripture. And find the parallels. Yeah. Right, right. And how is this living in me? Try to make sense of my reality through that lens. But it's so interesting to me because I think, especially being an LGBTQ person, I think sometimes the tendency is just to cut yourself off from religion, community, and even the Bible characters, right? And so you go through life recreating your own meaning in ways that feel impactful, deep, spiritual to you. And something that was like in the background as a whisper, but I just see it coming fully to fruition. And that is the story of the Exodus and the story of Abraham and Isaac and even the story of Jesus, right? And what happened during these stories for those of you who know and those of you who may not be so familiar, but there was a period in their journey where they were exiled from their land. And they went down to a neighboring country, Egypt, where they found refuge, right? And they found opportunity. They even found wealth. And it says that they came out of that exile with great riches. So in the Exodus, even, the Israelites are told to get the gold and to get all of this stuff. And then they leave that country. They went from a place of being enslaved to a place of being, like, economically empowered. So... For me, I have often felt that I have been in somewhat living in exile, right? I think there are times that I've just had this heartache because I felt like California is not a place that I can afford to return back to. And I will say this is a theme that's happening across the country called gentrification, where neighborhoods where people grow, grew up are being taken over by people who have wealth and 
the taxes are rising, the rent prices are rising, and people have to move out of their hometowns, out of their neighborhoods, because they can no longer afford it. Yeah, I was pretty surprised in your conversation with your dad how much the homes that were being built in the area that you grew up in were at the time that you were in high school versus now that same area. I mean, it's impossible to purchase. Oh, it's it's gone up to like $1.2 million. Like it would be impossible, barring me becoming greatly wealthy <laughs> or be, being 50 where I've saved up a lifetime of wealth. But who knows what real estate prices will be like then? <laughs> $10 million, who knows? Like it, it feels out of reach. And in some ways it still is, right? But I left what I felt like as an exile. I, and I remember, I've shared this on the podcast before, like there was a period of time I was living in my car and I was working and I had enough money to kind of buy food. Like if you're making 1500 two grand a month, you don't have enough money to buy an apartment and pay for electricity and buy the things that you need on top of that. Gas, car insurance, a phone bill, groceries. I had enough for a gym membership to shower. I had enough to buy myself food. I had enough to pay my cell phone, but I didn't have enough to house myself, literally. And there was a time where I finally rented a room and it was like very cheap. And it was like a kind of a live-in health care situation for a while. And then I moved to Michigan. And I mean, that, that story is just deserving a pause because I know it's quick, you can move through it pretty quickly, but that's a harsh reality. I mean, you've reflected on this before where you graduate Victorian from your high school and you go off to UCLA. And these, like, these are, I think, accomplishments that build up to an expectation of what your life would look like. Yeah. And then, in contrast to that is, what, three years in, four or five years in, yeah. a picture of you living in your car, showering in some Planet Fitness, and not it's being able- Total to Fitness, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and having this broken relationship that's also impacting how you reach out to the people that you love and could pro have- Probably. Very much, very much. And I, I say this story even somewhat with shame because I did not reach out to people or family members that I think if they would have known my situation would have been a very sad and would have helped. But I had it in my mind that, okay, there's a lot of things going on. One, I was under this religious pressure, feeling like I'm the only Christian in my family. Here I am in a failing marriage. I am not doing well economically. Like, how is this a testament to my belief? Because mm. you felt like you had to... Witness to them, yeah. Yeah, and have your family see a positive image of God through your life, right? Exactly. So I think it's it's not just economic hardship. It's feeling alone and in despair and having nowhere to turn to and really digging in deeper into your faith as your only resource. Yep. But... I mean, depleting yourself in every other aspect, which I'm sure yeah. impacts how you're able to cope and even reach a healthy space in your relationship to God. So anyways. It was, it was easier for me to live in my car than to ask for help, to admit that 
my life is not going in the direction that I had hoped. I would rather have, and I did (laughs) for a very long time and kept a lot of my circumstances hidden because it, it did feel so shameful to me at the time. And so having this kind of mindset of like, I made my bed, I've got a lie in it. Something I'm realizing now that I wish was taught to me then, when I graduated, nobody told me that the fields that I wanted to get into were really fields that I needed to be exceptional at in order to make a living for myself in the area that I live in, right? If I wanted to be a writer or somebody who makes 60K a year, I would need to live in the Midwest to be able to afford a house and to probably not even now, right? But like to afford the things on a single income that there is no way I could have gotten a degree at UCLA in the in the arts, a bachelor's degree. And that's what ended up happening. I, I graduated and I could not find a job for the life of me. I ended up tutoring, ended up doing in-home health care to the point that I was forced to go back to graduate school because nobody told me that the only way you can afford to live in California is like, be a doctor, be a nurse anesthetist, (laughs) be a lawyer, be somebody who makes over 6K, an entrepreneur of some type. But to have a regular job or to do follow your passions was not economically viable. And so I found myself really struggling and made it a me issue. Yeah, well, I think it's also hard because not that I've only been to California two times, both enough to convince me I want to live there. (laughs) So with that disclaimer in mind, but my perception of the culture in California, it's very creative. And I think there is this kind of buoyancy around the arts and diving into. Yeah, it's LA, it's Hollywood. It's also exposure to proximity to a lot of people that have made it in the arts, right? And so it's a part of the conversation. It's a part of the way people live and think. Of course, maybe some coming from more affluent families and they can afford these economic risks because they're- They have a net, a safety net. They do have a safety net and the stakes aren't so high. But for a regular Joe with- no connections. Yeah. I think it's really, really hard to make it. Yeah. And, and it was so much so that I'm like, I have to figure out like a career move. And I thought I'm still in a very mystic space because the way that I practice spirituality was very mystical, very much. I'm in a relationship with God. Wish I could use the term monk, but I don't think there's anything to describe Adventist fundamentalism, spirituality, (laughs) because it wasn't a political fundamentalism. It was veganism, prayer, studying your Bible, constant conversation, making meaning of circumstances. Like it felt very mystical. Yeah. And I was like, feels like the best fit for me would go to seminary. And it caused me to... Well, it is is a life of of deprivation. Deprivation, Deprivation, right? So I think... Monk is a good association for the kind of commitment that you're making. I remember there was a time in my life where I was dedicating eight hours of my day to reading scripture. Mm. And I mean, it didn't last very long. I think it was like a two and a half month period 
But these were the kinds of commitments that I would make. I've had several of those versions, right? Sometimes it was about the kind of food that I ate. I just would deprive myself of anything too stimulating. Yep, caffeine or sugar or whatever. Right, like just eating a very simple diet, obviously vegan. And there were other times it was about what I would consume in terms of entertainment. Yep. And really looking down at people who would just not filter what they let their mind be exposed to. So just to validate that maybe there isn't something that people can associate, like with monks, they can associate that kind of deprivation too. Yeah. But it's like, you don't, you don't, it, it doesn't even quite make sense, right? Because there's no reason behind it other than a deeper connection with God. Yeah, very devotional in that sense. Maybe that's a good word. Yeah, like, very devoted life. Yeah, and, and, and that was my path at that time. And left California really to move somewhere long-term for the first time in my life and found that I could have an apartment for $500. <laughs> of course, we had mice in the winter, but <laughs> but it, it was something that I could sustain myself off of a $2,000 income a month. But during that time, I think there was a lot of still this grief of, I need to find a new home because I won't ever be able to return back to my home because I just can't afford it, right? And the path that I'm choosing is probably not all that economically viable. And then after leaving are really being pushed out of the church. It was this added layer of like a refuge from California into the seminary. And now where do I refuge now after being pushed out of this space? And Boston, you know, opened up in a way to become my Egypt in that sense, in a biblical sense of how Abraham went down and came out with great riches. And I'm looking back as I return and say, coming back, I I left with nothing, literal nothing. You left California in a very dire state. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I owned fit in the trunk of my car. And I had very little in my bank account. And I'm coming back to California with what I feel to be great riches. Like I have a master's degree. I have a fiance. Both of us have jobs at Stanford. These are huge things, great riches to return back to. Mm -hmm. And it feels like I'm coming back to California in a much more enlivened state than what I left. Also, not to mention a car, which will be full of plants. My plant babies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can I just say right now, they don't know this, but we are surrounded and what could be a mini greenhouse. Yes. <laughs> like, I don't even know what they're Plant all called. Plant hoarders. We're like, that's beautiful. One, two, Give it to me. One, two, three, four, five, six, I nine, will say ten. that we have three, four plants that were gifted to us. But Jade, oh my word, this is just the most beautiful. I'll read it. I mean, our listeners don't. You cannot see we'll it. We'll post but. a picture of Jade <laughs> as our like cover for the podcast of this week. Yes. <laughs> that we're in the midst of. And I think it's just so, for me, it's very beautiful to like look at this moment and realize this feels biblical. And like I said, I don't often give myself the permission to make that association, but it's in these moments that I really, I do find God. 
And I say that because so many LGBTQ Adventists, non-Adventists, just Christians who have been exiled from their church, from their families, from their communities, like, I think there is a promise in exile. And at the time, like I said, I knew these stories, but I don't think I believed them. Like, I don't think I applied them to me. I can be very pragmatic and not hold a lot of space for what I would think is wishful thinking. <laughs> don't I know it? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, sometimes I, I look down on hopeful thinking and think we got to be real right now. Like, let's let's not be all hopeful because that's unrealistic. I think that's been one of the beauties of this great transition in our lives is just how much of a reminder it is that my faith is still very much alive. Yeah. I had worried in all my transition and and how much my language towards God and my theology have changed that my relationship to God would feel more watered down Mm. or that my faith would not be as exercised as before. What I'm finding is great empowerment to use the faculties of my mind and my body, my spirit to make decisions that are in alignment with the gifts that God has given me, but also a great acknowledgement that there is so much that is out of my control. So this transition has helped me to realize what you call wishful thinking that so many things we've placed in God's hands have come true yep. in a way that besides faith or, or wishful thinking, I think it would be completely unrealistic to hope for. Yeah. But Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you got your job offer at Stanford first, mm-hmm. and you were very much sure that, okay, we're going back to California well, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, we're probably gonna have to like save up for three more years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. But it's, it's also all these confirmations. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't just that I got the job offer. It was, I actually had a conversation with my mother realizing I need, I need to feel that God is holding my hand through this, that this is not just something that I'm seeking out after, but that that there's a mutuality between what I'm reaching for and what's receiving me. I was basically like, I was still ready to be here for three more years. Yeah. So here's the thing. You were very open to Boston. And I think at this point where we are right now, you're in a place where you were in the recent past in a place where you were open to staying here longer. And Um, I will say just even to like correct some sentiments on the last podcast, like I am very grateful for this space because it it did give me a career that is outside of the scope of what I would imagine an MDiv would be for the Seedon affairs. Like that now that's something that's transferable to an entirely new state, an entirely new hospital, in a way that I thought I would have to continue recreating myself, maybe falling back on communications or something, working with these secondary skills. But to find all the gifts that Boston has given me of security, of stability, of a life that I can live out loud with you has just been something that I'm incredibly grateful for. 
and I think I wanted to experience a little bit more of Boston. Yeah. I grieved some of my expectations. I had gone through my winter, my first winter, <laughs> and understood what life and my career was going to look like. And I'd made peace with that, and I was ready to stay in for the long haul. Yeah. And so I think you were of the mind that we could stay here longer and we could build, but the opportunity opened itself in a way that was not very complicated to just say, hey, we're just going to transfer our situation. And I think that's the beauty of relationship too. Sometimes we can't see for ourselves or we have an emotional block or we're too afraid to hope for things that I think would make us very happy. But the people we journey with us know to recognize what we really value and encourage us when we're feeling scared. It's so interesting to me. All the things that this transition is bringing out. Right now we are surrounded by boxes. We're, we're getting rid of a bunch of stuff. And we made some interesting discoveries. Maybe. We'll- <laughs> so I think what's delaying our boxing is yeah. discovering journals or, or little trinkets of treasures that are just hidden in our home. Yeah. And so you open up this journal that you had. I had opened up a journal that I had. And of course, these are entries that are reflecting <laughs> a state of mind. And like, we're like, look at what I was thinking 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> look at how I was praying only three years ago. Yeah. And the things that I was worried about. So do you want to share? I I think I do. I think what? I'm going to share and I will figure out and post if I actually want to share this. Okay. <laughs> so I'm excited for people to hear your voice as it sounded prior to the exile that led to this major return. Man, there's so many entries I have not even read yet. But this one came out to me and I and I'm going to read it. It's July 20th, 2011. So this is 12 years ago, people. 12 years ago. Wait, paint 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 a picture of your life 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I am 24, 2 years out of college and have gone into my most fundamental thinking of Adventism. I would say being groomed by a spiritual leader and having my own suspicions about kind of my own feelings of this not being quite right. And I am gaslighting myself using scripture. Okay. Can, okay. can I press you to be more specific? When you say being groomed, you were in a relationship with a spiritual leader? Yes. And you were wondering if this was okay or not okay or or suspecting whether this person was right for you? Well, it was very complicated in the sense that this was somebody who I had looked to for leadership spiritually and taught me a lot about, I don't know, the Bible. So... I was coming out of my college phase and I didn't know where to put my Christianity, my Adventism. I didn't know how it held up against like the academic rigors of science and evolution and all of these progressive thoughts that I didn't have an answer for. And this person seemed to have very definitive answers and very 
thought out ways of providing those answers in a way that I hadn't discovered before. But he was also much older. And I use the word groom because they were significantly older than I was. And like I said, I was 22, which you don't know all that much about the world. (laughs) Well, it just sounds like you were impressionable at that time. You were in a time of seeking and searching for spiritual guidance. And you perceive this person to have a wisdom and a knowledge about about God. And it was interesting because we would go to Bible studies and when he would pray, I would feel like a change in the atmosphere to the point that I started associating that with like, is this the Holy Spirit? It felt supernatural. I was physically experiencing things that I had never experienced before. And to me, that was a confirmation that this is the right path or this person is chosen or there's some kind of blessing over this person that I need to stick close to. But then I was also finding these very odd things like... Can I just say Uh also, it's really interesting when you say that because we're all looking to make sense and meaning out of our experiences. Right. And I wonder if the version of you now were in a space similar to that and perceived a change in the atmosphere, the kind of meaning that you would attribute to it would be very different than the person who was desperately seeking to connect with God, looking towards leaders, hoping, already granting them the benefit of the doubt in terms of how connected they are to God and their ability to command. Yeah, and there's so many things that are so interesting about the brain. The fact that drugs can induce certain, like if I were to take mushrooms, I would be on a trip right now, like that the colors would be vibrant, the thoughts would be intertwined in ways that they're not normally. And who's to say that the power of my belief in those moments didn't cause some type of chemical reaction in a way that it was kind of a high right, where it was this kind of almost self-induced experience in some Mm -hmm. sort. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just know that. That's the meaning you attribute it to. You attribute to that experience then, which was, oh, the Holy Spirit must be present. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and I think that happens a lot in cults too. Like there's an experience, there's a moment of clarity that happens. There's this power of the perceptiveness of a person and you're wondering this must be otherworldly right in fact there's a documentary on hulu please watch it it's called stolen youth and to me that was the closest thing i have seen to date of something that feels like it borderline my experience because you have a a woman who graduated valedictorian of her high school got a scholarship to go to harvard became a, a doctor, a psychiatrist, was in her residency after she got full ride to Harvard both times, undergrad and graduate school, because she was so amazing academically, was in her residency her fifth year or something, about to be finally like officially a doctor, and gets sucked in to this powerful personality mm-hmm. and becomes a complete shell of her former self. Yeah, it's incredible how somebody so gifted and intelligent and well-rounded and well-connected, right? Somebody with a supportive family 
could fall victim to the grooming and still fall victim to a relationship that just is cult-like. It's cult-like, exactly. I don't think, I think people think it's really hard to find yourself in that situation, but we've we've seen enough documentaries <laughs> on the way cults operate, and usually they don't feel cultish, yeah. right? And relationships don't start off feeling cultish. There's usually a sense of admiration or a buy-in. Yeah. And with time, it just takes time. It morphs into something bigger and more powerful. So at the time, there were there were holes. And I was not allowing myself to trust my intuition. Trusting your intuition sounds like a benign thing. Like you can mistakenly forget to pay attention to this inner voice. Yeah. But I think that's far less harmful than to say something's not right. It doesn't make sense. It's it's not even intuition. Like I I can see how somebody can miss understanding something that they may feel but when you use your logic and your reason that's different from a feel like a felt sense yeah intuition is more connected to something doesn't feel right Right. but but you you in your intellect saw things that weren't congruent with the picture this person was painting of themselves or the way that they painted faith and still decided to neglect And a part of that was I I literally thought at some point that I didn't have what I needed to access God in the way that they did. Like their their knowledge, they were 20 years past surpassing my own experience and religion. So of course I trusted that and I thought that I needed that in order to be able to access God. And I just wanted to be so close to God at that point of my life. And... I I will tell you the the day the lights came on and my wrestling with this afterwards, but I was checking my email on their computer and their email popped up as soon as I typed in my like, I was using Hotmail at the time. It's like Outlook now. Their Hotmail came up and I could see the subject lines and the subject lines were these Craigslist, these Craigslist personal ads. So I'll just say that I discovered some behavior in contradiction to the presentation that was given to me. And so I had been reading Ellen White a lot. And so this is the quote, and I'll tell you when the quote ends. It says, Satan is constantly seeking to excite a spirit of irreverent curiosity, a restless, inquisitive desire to penetrate the secrets of divine wisdom and power. In their efforts to search out what God has been pleased to withhold, multitudes overlook the truth which he has revealed and which are essential to salvation. So I'm going to pause right there because I'm reading this and I'm thinking that my own suspicions that I have in in my current situation that I was dealing with, that I shouldn't follow up on the inquisitive desire to penetrate the secrets. <laughs> like there was this sense of like my curiosity is something that I should repent of. And says Satan, and only the things that are essential to salvation are things that I should worry about. Quote continues, 
Satan tempts men to disobedience by leading them to believe they are entering a wonderful field of knowledge. But this is all a deception. Elated with their ideas of progression, they are, by trampling on God's requirements, setting their feet in the path that leads to degradation and death. Satan represented to the holy pair, Adam and Eve, that they would be gainers by breaking the law of God. Do we not today hear similar reasoning? Oh my gosh. Okay, I can't wait till you read your (laughs) response to this. My initial reaction is just how afraid I was of my own curiosity. And you read this quote, and I'm immediately transported to when I was afraid of being curious about anything. Mm. Uh, In fact, I taught myself so much. I I thought that it was a life skill to to be so restrained. Yeah. And I remember that there were, like if people were talking in church, I would probably disapprove of how unrestrained they were. Like they couldn't practice restraint. I felt superior in my quote unquote ability to withhold myself from exploring deeper or to fall into an attitude, a spirit of conversation when I'm supposed to be paying attention. Yeah. Like I remember there was this thing about my posture even. Mm. Like my friends would say that I would sit so straight at church, which <laughs> I think is a metaphor <laughs> <laughs> hidden in there. Sitting because, so straight. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my reaction is uh, I want to hear, I want to hear what you. Well, th- my response to this was to gaslight myself. And it says, Oh, how I need to, to trust the Lord more that the spirit of suspicion, this is me saying, why are you having all this suspicious and doubt? And like, you shouldn't inquire more about these things that are shocking and actually should be followed up on. <laughs> and I said, and perverse projections upon the minds and thoughts of others. So I am here judging myself about how dare I call a thing, a thing, that all of this continues to erode my faith in the perfect Christ. Can you, can you read it uninterrupted? Okay. Oh, how I see my need to trust the Lord more that my spirit of suspicion and perverse projections upon the minds and thoughts of others does not continue to erode my faith in the perfect Christ. I've been entirely deceived in my effort to find out the quote secrets that the Lord has been pleased to withhold. Let my eyes never leave the love of the Savior. Let my heart desire to search out nothing but his wisdom, his love that I may remain in the blessing of obedience to his will. Let me behold his perfect character, his perfect selflessness, and his life of sacrifice and enduring patience through suffering. Let me see these qualities about his love and by beholding become changed. Let the sin of my suspicion be no longer cherished. Let me relinquish my control into the ever-loving arms of the Savior, being made as one who is as willing of a companion in all suffering and sacrifice that I learn to love with the purity of Christ's heart. Wow. Basically, put the blinders on and just... Let God take care of Let God take care of... Like, that's between them and the Lord, and you just love as though they were perfect. How do you feel towards the version of you that you just read? I feel 
I feel scared for them to relinquish so much common sense into this kind of spirituality of of trying to emulate what they think Christ is like, which is to see no evil, hear no evil, relate to people only on the basis of how they wish to be beheld without any evidence weighted to that. And so, yeah, I see somebody who's who's gaslighting themselves. And I think because of my association, and we've talked a little bit about this, like even in our relationship, there's so much history embedded in the experience of Christianity that it's hard to go back there. It's hard to reincorporate Christian traditions and practices from a space that was so traumatized into a present where I'm seeking healing. Yeah, I think what's changed is that you're not afraid to be inquisitive and to bring your fullness of self and the fullness of your experience into the equation. And so I imagine it must be so hard to look back and see the way that you were relating to God and, and, and to yourself, asking yourself to put these blinders on. And maybe enough healing has occurred where it's not so scary or not tethered to a version of you that was blinders on. And so scared to lose my salvation. And so uncritical of figures like Ellen White, where I would take it as a universal truth of what she's saying, instead of being like, I don't know what the context for her statement was. Or these hyper applications, yeah, exactly. That are, you know, yeah. trying to make the wisdom of this one person in their context, speaking to a specific scenario, also apply to every scenario. Like it was universal, like the Ten Commandments. Yes. And, and to be like, I can be critical of that type of thinking that would make that universal application. And so well, I think what's interesting too is there was a lot of pushback from from the person as well as from the scripture to not inquire. That now on the other end of the spectrum, I think sometimes people do wish to be taken for face value. And for the most part, I'm good with that. But to realize that I am perceptive. So if I see something that's a person is acting off, not to gaslight myself and be like, don't ask them what's going on with their life. <laughs> I'm the kind of person now who's like, what's going on? Like, well, I noticed this. I noticed that you're not doing this or you're we're not really communicating, like, what's going on. Instead of, even if the person says, well, everything's fine, I can trust myself enough to be like, man, things are not fine. And it's not me being too curious or inquisitive or too pressed. Well, yeah, you called it the sin of suspicion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so to speak at how evil it was for you to even try to to understand things that are not clear to you. Right. I mean, I I can't think of a more stay in the line kind of mentality where you're taught to not question yep. your authority, your relationships, your role. You just follow. Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's not the kind of discipleship that I think invites the totality of the person and the gifts that God has given them. Yeah. And I think that's what we've done is we've hyper applied these concepts or 
made the concept of suffering, made the concept of devotion so quintessential to a life that is pleasing to God that we've kind of compromised the very things that make us who we are yeah. as humans. Yeah. I, I, yes, did Adam and Eve in their seeking of knowledge ate of this fruit <laughs> and allowed for sin to enter the world. Teach us something about a loyalty and being mindful of our actions. Yes. But, but this application that curiosity and the sought of knowledge and understanding things that are mysterious, which I think is an exaggeration of what the text was intended or the story right. was intended to show. Would keep us now, from all progress of modern medicine and science and all that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the story of Adam and Eve, while maybe well-intended and applicable for certain things, is not universally applicable for all things that require an inquisitive nature. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happens. Sometimes people are like, oh, the Bible is so simple that a child can understand it. And then when you try to bring nuance and complicate the situation, they're like, no, well, no, it, sh it should be simple. Taken at face value. Right, right. <laughs> that, that, that to think about it with complexity means that you're taking away some truth. And so I think it's very clunky if you're doing this exercise of understanding by yourself yep. and you're not bringing into the picture all of the elements and, and the wisdom of a community and, and the wisdom of your experience and letting all sorts of things influence the way that you make meaning and sense, then it just becomes a script and this blanket application. And I think that's what religion can turn into sometimes. It's yeah. just, we all agree, and we're not going to mess with it, and we're not going to overcomplicate it, and we're just going to go with the flow here. It's so true. And, and as, as we are packing our books and giving rid of quite a few books, <laughs> it's been great to kind of thin down some of the bloat and recognize the ways that our own thinking has changed over the last 12 10, 5, 3, 1 year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you're particularly reflecting on as we make this transition and are cleaning out some of our old ways of being? The application is so different now that a lot of these books don't hit the same and don't captivate me in the same way. I think they evoke more of an emotional response as I put in the giveaway pile books that are at one point gave me a lot of comfort and direction. What I sense is a lot of nostalgia. There's a little voice inside that says, are you sure you're not going to need this? Are you sure? And when I hear that voice, my response to it, which is a much louder voice, a much bigger voice, is I'm not so scared. Mm. It's okay. You're doing just great. God Aww. loves you. Yeah. you There's love always God. Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can always come back to this. Yeah. I know, I don't know if anybody here is really familiar with IFS, internal family systems, mm. but it's, it's that 
that part of me that wanted to devote her whole life to serving Jesus and to understanding the word to its fullest yeah. that is afraid of throwing these treasures, not throwing them away, giving away these treasures of knowledge. But but I have so much of it in me already, and I'm so grateful. You're carrying it in your being. I am, I am. And they're not discarded, and I think I'm just trying to shore that little part within myself that she's still alive, she's not going to go anywhere, and that none of it has been discarded. So that's just the little version that was so fear-based in her approach to the world that of course she's still a little afraid and I have to remind her that it's okay and that that we're just moving forward we're not moving away that's such a beautiful conversation with your little person yeah yeah I think as I reflect just going back to the promises of exile and you're in your own exile journey and maybe you can talk more about that at some point about what that looks like for you and what what quote returning home would look like but just to see that sometimes whether that's leaving the homeland of your home church or your actual physical state that there is riches to be gained through that season and there's a promise of return at some point and even though it may not always feel like that that there is this hope to be held on to in seasons of ostracization, of estrangement, of feeling kicked to the curb. And even for me, something that gives me hope, shout out to Alicia Johnston. (laughs) (laughs) But I think about her, she wrote her book five years after kind of resigning. And I'm like, man, it's been like a year for me. Maybe I'll come back with a book at some point, but I've got five years to do it. Like I don't need to be exiled and then like be ready to, to tackle right. a very heady and theological space, even though I think I have that in me. And, I'm, and I do hope at some point to write that book. I do still feel like I have time in this process of healing and making meaning. And at some point, this estrangement, this exile from the church that I will come back at some point with something to say in, in a book form. <laughs> I'm saying it now, but like... <laughs> <laughs> so funny because I have two thoughts. Uh-huh. A... My exile arc is a little different. I think it's less geographical because mm. I, I really haven't felt a sense of home for the majority of my life. I've moved so much, so I don't, I don't really claim places like that. It's been more so around my own exile to self. Like at some point I gave myself up. Mm. And I was afraid to be who I am. And, and I have returned in some ways. And, yeah. And that arc has seen its course. Mm. But the second thing I want to speak to is this urgency to produce material that would appeal to an audience in the Seventh-day Adventist world, an academic audience, and that would validate the conclusions we've come to for ourselves and for our life and for our sexuality. Mm. And 
a bigger space in academia for an affirming theology. But, and there's a big but, it's so important to do what we're doing now. And I really strongly believe it, that even though, like you said, you have it in you, I have it in me. We, we both do. We both went to seminary. I don't think we talk as if we don't go into that academic space and try to bring meaning to who we are because we're fighting against a culture. I mean, it's, it's precisely these conversations that stand against a culture that says it needs to make sense through this lens through scripture alone in order for us to buy in and begin to have a conversation. Mm. And the reason we're fighting and standing against a culture that says that is because we've learned that you need more elements and mm. that story and narrative matter. I mean, phenomenon, science matters in mm. this conversation. And I think we're paying attention to how the experience plays out and at some point we'll deliver and we'll have our separate projects and maybe our shared projects where we talk a little bit more through the lens of academia scripture yeah yeah i think so some of these books that we're cleaning out I, i'm keeping for the sole purpose of that one day one day book project yeah book project where i know i'm gonna have to go back to the references, yeah. um, to church references, and then I'm not going to speak to it just from a psychological or a philosophical or a scientific point of view, that that it will be well-rounded and that it will speak to an audience who has been informed and instructed by leaders of the church. I cannot wait for us to get these projects underway and for this new step in life and the things that we're shedding away the things we're shedding away emotionally, physically as we pack our bags. And we will, we're going to take little snippets from our road trip and let people know what we're thinking. It may not be the best quality, but I do intend to do that. So, yeah, you yeah. know, I think shedding homophobia and guilt and shame is a journey. And sometimes it creeps up on me like, like grief does and like yeah. any other experience. If there's anyone listening out there who wants to share some of their story anonymously and wants us to share it, you can direct message us and hashtag share anonymously. Can I, yes. one more thing to add? If you have specific questions about our personal journey or maybe maybe we can introduce some of that academia stuff in snippets, right? Yep. So if you have questions around sexuality and scripture or... Yeah. We don't have to share your name when we do it, but we'd be happy to like give answer you them here on the podcast. It's much, it's, uh, yeah. It's much easier than writing them down for now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be happy to do that. We are excited to take this journey with you all. Thank you all for listening this week to Amago Gay. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault. And I've been your co host, Roxanne <laughs> Del Valle. And um, you can reach us at Kendra Arsenault with an X on Instagram, and Roxanne Marie with two eyes on Instagram. Thank right. you. And we will see you all on the road. Yes. Next episode in California.